Rodgers has it. Gives to Franklin. He no, dies. No, I don't think no, he got it. I no, don't think he got out, it. The ball is out. The Bengals have scooped it up. Burrow bouncing in the pocket. His throw caught at the 10-yard line. T. Higgins straight into the end zone. Touchdown, Bengals. It's a T.D. Hello and welcome to episode 121 of Cincinnati, the Bengals UK podcast. We're back after a a couple of weeks break. It's very nice to be back. We hope that you are all well, keeping safe. There's light at the end of the tunnel and my particular light in my particular tunnel is Nathan Palmer. Nathan, hello. How you doing, my son? been a while isn't it i've missed seeing your your squidgy little face <laughs> squidgy little face hold on a minute um even a being keeper my old mucker uh yeah fine surviving as ever and uh obviously working on a brand new uh opening theme for the podcast what do you think of that fabulous mate i think it's time for a bit of a you know spruce things up a bit we had a couple of weeks off didn't we you know give the fans something uh something to lap up when they come back so yeah nice little touch I mean, we needed a bit of joe boy in uh in the opening theme didn't we and um that that green bay that was that i'm assuming that's obviously the game where um <laughs> that was it jonathan franklin for the packers yeah, ran yeah, it and yeah. then it got picked up. Was it Reggie Nelson picked it up and that's ran right, it back? That's right. One of, uh, that was. One of I remember that fondly. Classic games from from recent years, but also just put it in there because Dave Lapham shouting balls out, balls out, balls out. Basically, Dave Lapham shouting balls out, balls out, balls out in any sort of context <laughs> needs to be in our opening theme. I think. <laughs> indeed, indeed. That no, could have laughed. Uh, absolutely. Well, we hope you enjoyed that. It's the first time we've updated our opening theme for three years. And as Nathan said, uh, we kind of needed to because Dalton's gone. And sadly, it looks like AJ's going to be going too in the coming weeks. So uh, it's time to start afresh. And we're almost at the start of the new season. Um, and uh, yeah, we've got stuff going on. Obviously, we've got our International Women's Day podcast next week. Delighted to say that Alison Montoya, daughter of Max, uh, Bengals legend Max Montoya, will be joining us next week uh, on International Women's Day. I think it actually falls on the Monday, so that's something to look forward to. Uh, we've been uh, we've been rooting and tooting out our um, lockdown combine challenges for a couple of weeks. So thanks so much for anyone that has sent in videos this week's challenge is your interpretation of the four cone challenge or three cone challenge it doesn't really matter how many cones just stick some cones down uh, of whatever description and do your thing upload them to twitter at whoday underscore uk it's all part of our off-season engagement program we want as many people during this lockdown to feel part of our community and join in with lots of daft stuff so uh, if you've got any uh, ideas for your adaptations or interpretations of the Four Cone Challenge, as we're calling it, um, do upload. And of course, this week uh, we're back uh, with uh, this episode of the podcast. And Nathan, we've had quite a few requests from listeners um, about uh, the cap 
What is it? What does it mean? Uh, franchise tags, what do they mean? What are they? Um, so in a little while, we're going to um, take a, a layman's dive, a layperson's dive into uh, what all that means, looking at the cap. Because obviously it is the free, uh, the free agent uh, time of the season, isn't it, really? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's something that sometimes as fans we do overlook is what's realistic with the cap, you know, accounting for stuff like um, rookie draft picks to be signed and all the different bonuses that people have and how contracts are structured and stuff. And I think most of the time, and probably rightly so, fans are just sat there thinking about like, you know, why are we not signing JJ Watt? Why are we not getting these guys in? And I think sometimes it's really useful and interesting and insightful to look into the actual you know the economics of what's doable what's not how it works and yeah i think it's a, a very apt as well obviously with the free agency just around the corner indeedy did you do uh because paul dana and jay morrison uh kind of put together this excel spreadsheet this little exercise really um where you could go through the roster and you could uh choose either a draft pick or a re-sign of a free agent and you had your cap to work with and you had various options for each roster spot. Did you do that? Because that was quite a fun exercise and it also showed you how actually difficult it is to fit everyone in financially. Um, so that was the that was the lesson that I took from that. Um, but it was really good fun. It was. I mean, there's lots of these sort of, I say lots, a couple of these sort of, uh, front office, not only mock draft simulators, but also front office simulators, aren't there? And I think it does demonstrate uh, how tricky it is to re-sign everyone that you want to re-sign and bring in the free agents that you want to bring in. And it just shows you that you can't do it all all at once, really, unfortunately. No, absolutely. And to your point, I did use one of that. I think it might have been, was it maybe not PFFs, but... Um, I think you used fan, fan-sided, didn't you, wasn't it? Yeah, that's not a good shout. Yeah, was, was it fan-sided? It was all... I can't remember what it's called, but... Yeah, no, I think you might be right. Fan-speak. Fan-speak, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did. I think it was a while ago now. It was about a month or two ago. Sort of when the season was sort of fresh in my mind at the end, I jumped on that and did a few little mocks of, you know, what you could do with that. Really good tool. I've ever built it. Really smart, intuitive sort of tool to use. And just, you know, obviously the numbers are never going to be perfect. But it's very interesting, like you said, when you're thinking about like having to fit everyone in. And then you're not only just looking at like the obvious free agents that everyone's concerned with, like Carl Lawson and William Jackson, but also, you know, people like Mackenzie Alexander, other sort of fringe players on the roster you know are you bringing them back or not who are you bringing back at a backup quarterback are you you know how what money are you put into brandon allen and stuff like that so there's a few considerations that you know don't necessarily get thought about and i think it's a good way of sort of seeing a holistic picture of um the roster so yeah f- fully recommend that um fan speak uh bit, off bit, i found simulator. that a bit unrealistic though because i signed carl lawson for six million a year and i'm sorry <laughs> that's because but... yeah that's because you gave him some other treats on the side <laughs> exactly that. Uh, which i couldn't i can't mention on this podcast i, I promised too much as ever but um yeah, I signed Kyle Lawson for six million, and he's likely to go for uh, at least twice that amount. You know what I mean? Um, so it's a bit unrealistic, but also again quite fun. I do urge you, if you're a subscriber of the Athletic, to go and have a go at um, at uh, Paul and Jay's 
uh, kind of front office simulator, for want of a better phrase, because that's fun. Now, before we get to our guest uh, to talk about the cap and hopefully to to explain the cap a little bit better, because I think you and I both, Nathan, aren't kind of, you know, that's our real blind spot, really. Uh, as I mentioned during the interview um, with, I should say, Andre Perotta, who's a... Who's a, a a lawyer up in Michigan, but an ardent Bengals fan. He's just terrific on Twitter when it comes to contracts and breakdowns and explaining things. Uh, so we couldn't think of a better person to have on. He 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 is genuinely fantastic, and he does really. It's it's a bit like a maths lesson, I have to say, but kind of quite a fun one. I would, and not not a very difficult one. He really does spell things out. So Andre's coming up uh, in a little while. Um, but yeah, I mean, contracts and breakdowns and, you know, signing bonuses and franchise tax, that's not my favourite part of this sport. It's my least favourite part of this sport, I have to say. See, I do quite like it because it is such an intricate part. And that's why I always say about how um, I think there's such a gap in the market for that, like American football manager style of game, yeah, similar agree, to the yeah, UK yeah. football manager. Because I do think that, you know, it, it almost weirdly, like so many people, I feel like in the last five to 10 years with the amount of tape that's now available and insight on the draft and videos and stuff like that, so many people have turned into sort of, you know, at home scouts and, you know, on the sofa scouts and really love that sort of detailed side of the game. And I do think as well that if you were to sort of, have it in a more digestible, uh, digestible and available format, um, like in the form of like a video game or something like that. I think people would be really interested as well in the the economics and the you know the financials of getting deals done and stuff like that. I mean, it very loosely addresses it on something like Madden. Like if you play that on the fr- the franchise mode, there's you know you, you have to sign people and stuff like that. But it obviously doesn't go into quite the quite the depth. But I do think that there's you know there could be more interest in it if it was. Um, in the format of a game like that, but um, yeah, it's it's obviously not not every, everyone's cup of tea. <laughs> no, but you know it is as you say, it is an important part of the game, and uh, you know as these simulators and mock draft simulators get more and more popular, um, fans are able to have their own little go at constructing their rosters. So um, it's best that we all under, understand the cappers. As much as we can. So Andre's coming in a few moments, but um, there's not too much news going on. It feels like the calm before the storm, really, doesn't it? Because we're we're looking to get some news, perhaps on a franchise tag. Who the Bengals will be dropping the tag on this year, if they indeed do at all. We they, we could have some cap casualties and roster cuts coming up. Uh, but at the moment, it's all it's all calm before the storm, isn't it? Um, except for one thing. Um, one thing that did get uh, Bengals fans in a bit of a tears, but this time in a positive way, was uh, Elizabeth Blackburn, uh, the Director of Strategy and Engagement at the Bengals, uh, released a mission statement on the um, Bengals website. And it was quite something wasn't it were you i mean it really fired me up i mean she just basically laid it down and just kind of you know laid down her vision um she said the bengals strive to be a championship football team with a culture built on high standards and competitive hunger we connect players fans and partners into one team to create an enduring legacy in cincinnati 
And then she goes on to describe her high standards. We want to win, she says, more than anything. We want to bring a Super Bowl to Cincinnati. Super Bowl titles, I should say. Um, then she lays out the connection uh, to fans, talking about season ticket uh, perks, new perks, new game presentation elements to PBS. Uh, she also talks about an enduring legacy. Uh, she wants to... Uh, she says she's working personally on ways big and small to amp this up in terms of uh, making Bengals legends from the past get the respect they deserve. And uh, let me just read this penultimate uh, paragraph. Nathan, Houday Nation and Cincinnati know that stripes don't come easy, but we are resilient. As Joe Burrow said, it's an Ohio thing. Or for anywhere else, shout out to Houday UK. Houday is a state of mind. Well, there you go. We are part of the vision, Nathan. That's what I mean. That you know, these people in the Bengals front office—they're listening to us, son. You know, it started with me and you and a couple of other lads in the pub having a few pints, and now we're now we're on the Bengals website. You know, that they know who we are. I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, to be honest with you. But uh, <laughs> this is something they don't listen back to the first couple of episodes. <laughs> I know, right? Um, I mean, it was great to see that, wasn't it? That was amazing. I wasn't expecting that. It's very nice of Elizabeth to uh, to uh, to mention us specifically. Um, and I must say, we will. I'm touching wood here. Uh, we will be having Elizabeth on the podcast in the near future. So watch this space. Um, to explain herself, basically, how dare she take our name in vain? Um, but no, I mean it really got the got the fan base fired up, and it's interesting because I was reading through that, and um, you know I've worked in PR and and journalism and copywriting and whatnot, um, and you you run your own digital marketing company. Um, it felt like a presentation to a client, really. It, she really sort of structured it like a presentation. And, of course, it's nothing new really here. I mean, she's just reinforcing and confirming things that the Bengals have never really come out and said before. And I think that's the big difference. Someone from the Bengals has finally come out and said all this stuff that we kind of knew was happening, but we just needed confirmation. We just needed that reinforcement. We just needed to be said. I mean, what did you think about it all? As a marketeer, I mean, she played a blinder really, didn't she? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, you can see the reaction of like a lot of people, a lot of fans on Twitter are saying exactly as you said about how it amped them up, it fired them up and stuff like that. And I think the Bengals in the last couple of years, especially the last probably two years, have really re-engaged themselves with the fan base, really. And they've probably done it at a pretty opportune time because... When things are going well, you don't necessarily have to have the best social media, the best comms, the best marketing. The winds, like the winds, will do it for you. But I think probably ever since that, the, the infamous "Who Day on a Scooter" video, I think <laughs> yeah. someone inside Paul Brown Stadium just said, "Look, we need to get our marketing, our comms, our social media, our, you know, the whole package." needs to connect better with the fan base and other organizations i think around the league have done a good job of it but not only have the bengals improved it i think they've really taken it to a level that's like within the top tier in the league the, the social media is of an excellent standard the stuff marissa does since she's been at the bengals for the last year or two has been fantastic um and this latest thing 
um, you know, is another example of them looking to personally connect with uh, the fan base, like identifying people within the organization. And Mike Brown, as an owner, if you go back, has tended to be quite a sort of man behind the scenes. He only does about one interview a year, like doesn't, you know, doesn't really take too many questions. He's sort of there in the background. Um, and you don't tend to see too much more of the ownership. But, you know, the only example maybe being like hard knocks. I think fans want to see, you know, the owners. They want to see people behind the scenes. They want to hear this passion. They want to feel like the people that are pulling the strings in the front office, you know, that the wins and losses mean as much to them as they do to, you know, the diehards that are there every week, rain or shine and, you know, win or lose. So I think for the Bengals to like show that and show that passion and show that they really want this team to win, that their fans at heart and, you know, to put themselves really like immerse themselves within the whole team and everything else. I think it's a smart move. And I think that it, you know, especially with at the moment where, you know, there's, if you think back to the season, just gone and the one before that, they've not been great on the field. You know, fans are frustrated. They want to win. It's been a while now since we've been a contender. I think to, you know, engage with the fans, show them you care is a very smart move. And I think it's going to be well received pretty much across the fan base. Really. There's not too much that you can argue with. Um, with respect no. to it. But you see my point about almost like the structure of it. It felt like a presentation, like a, a PowerPoint presentation, some sort of deck that she sort of put together. And she's almost pitching us, the Bengals fans, as almost like a client, which I guess we are in a way. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, we're, we're, we're a very high-paying client, you know. And yeah. that's, that's with respect to everything, with merchandise sales, ticket sales. You know, the Bengals are a business. They need to sell tickets. They need to sell merchandise. They, need, You know, they need to have engagement on their social plat- uh, platforms for sponsorship and, you know, for game day stuff. Like, it's an intricate, big machine, far bigger than any client that I've got with my, uh, mm. my business. But, you know, they're not stupid. And other teams around the league have been doing a very good job of it, like I said. And I think, you know, they just actually – in funny timing there's a i apologize here for not knowing the name but they've just taken on a new guy as head of content engagement i believe or head of design or something like that yeah yeah which is really exciting as well so you can see that they're really like prioritizing these positions the marketing team looks like it's growing and you know they want to deliver some really sort of like high quality content to the fans and I think this, as you were saying, in the style of it being like a slide deck for clients and stuff, it's a smart way to present it. It's easy to digest. It's easy to sort of uh, for people to read, you know, read, and it's just a, a lot more interesting than just words on a page, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, to be honest, I think it's a it's overdue, um, and I think that you know, it's an exciting future again to be a Bengals fan and to have this extra um, insight and engagement with the front office. And of course, um, the legacy side of it. I think we've spoken about this in the past. You know, the the lack of of a ring of honour, the lack of uh, seeming acknowledgement to the older players, and you know, because the older players love their time. A lot of them still live in Cincinnati, as we all know, um, and they love the city. They loved playing for the Bengals, and we love talking to the the veteran guys the legends we've had a few of them on this program quite a few of them and um it's all about connection with the city isn't it you know to celebrate veteran legends makes you more informed about the club and the club's history because it has got an illustrious history actually 
and innovative history when it comes to football stuff. Um, and you want those ties to, to carry on. You want that builds pride within the fan base. I know Mike Brown has always said, you know, pretty much no player is bigger than the club and he doesn't believe in looking backwards too much. But I bet you bet you if you sat him down, he would he would talk about Otto Graham, you know, Greg Cook, all these guys until the cows come home. So I know there hasn't much been much value placed on Rings of Honor and things like that, but you know those leaked photographs a couple of weeks ago, which 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 suggested yep. that the Bengals were actually going to do one this year. Um, I think that gets people. It makes people proud to be a fan because they know it reinforces again. It's just reinforcement, isn't it? That Ken Anderson played for us. He was an NFL MVP. Anthony Munoz played for us. He's a Hall of Famer. Boomer Esiason played for us. Another NFL MVP. Ken Riley should be in the Hall of Fame. Willie Anderson, you could go down. Chad Johnson, go down the years and find yeah. these fantastic players. It makes you proud to be a Bengals fan. And if the Bengals shout louder about their the guys that have played for them, I think the prouder that we feel, actually. Yeah, absolutely. It's just about emphasising the brand, isn't it? That's mm. what it all comes down to. It's making people feel part of a brand, feeling a part and immersed in the history of the club. And it's exactly like you said, the Bengals have got a fantastic history. They've had some excellent players play for the team. And like the word, the word reinforce, which you use is spot on because it is doing that. And there's a lot of people like yourself that have been around, um, you know, and been a fan for over 20 years, 30 years that remember those good times and want them to sort of be shared and celebrated. And, you know, we've met some of like, you know, people like Ken Anderson and, stuff like that and they're still part of the team they're still very much involved with the team and that's something to be celebrated it's something to be remembered and it's something to build on so yeah absolutely i think i think the ring of honor thing is, is one of those things that's so overdue it's such a nice thing to have in the stadium it's like a new feature it's something to celebrate and yeah i mean i'm excited to see what else the bengals have got lined up you know but who knows there could be some quite exciting surprises to come yeah i mean it's, it's i mean watch this space new uniform coming up in the next yeah, month, exactly. couple of months exactly yeah new crop of draft picks joe burrow coming back goodness me if they could only get it together on the field we i mean can you imagine <laughs> the atmosphere within the fan base um so yeah thanks to elizabeth for spelling it all out and 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 energizing re-energizing the fan base and mentioning us as well which is very kind of a uh, right, Nathan, let's get to our special guest. His name is Andre Perotta, and he's going to talk to you about the cap. Well, as promised, our guest this week, not a moment too soon, I think, is uh, Andre Perotta. He's a, he's a lawyer from Michigan, uh, but also uh, an ardent Bengals fan. And if you follow him on Twitter, you'll know that Andre is the man. I can't genuinely, I can't think of another person to go to on Twitter uh, who breaks down contracts, who explains it all. He's really into it. Yes, he's a weird, weird guy, but um, but we had to have him on because obviously tis the season for talking about contracts and cap numbers and franchise tags and all that kind of stuff. So, um, Andre, welcome to Cincinnati. Thank you, uh, Paul. Thanks for having me. It's great to, to join you. And before we get into our question, because I keep mentioning, a lot of people have asked us to kind of break down uh, what the cap is and what it means and all the maths and all the kind of facts and figures. Um, we are going to approach this uh, from a, 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 an ultra layperson's point of view. 
because I am one of those people, I have to admit, the contractual side of things, the the cap and all the rest of it is not my favourite area of, of this sport that we both love. Um, so um, how do, what, why is, is the, is the contract stuff and the, and the cap stuff so interesting to you? I guess I wanted to ask you first. Uh, thanks. The, the reason I think primarily that I find it interesting is uh, one, I, my, my legal background, I'm a, I'm a corporate attorney. So I deal with contracts all day, every day in, in my, in my real life. Um, so I've always found that um, to, to be really the genesis of, of my interest in on this side of football. Of course, as you mentioned, I'm a, I'm a general Bengals fan. I love the, the sport itself. But the reality is, I'm, for example, I'm also a big college football fan. Uh, but in college football, you don't deal with the realities of, of fitting players under a financial system called the salary cap, like the NFL. So um, knowing that there is a system which Paul, we were talking earlier, when you became a fan in the NFL in the mid-80s, there was no salary cap. And so in the early 90s, the league and the Players Association were, were trying to determine um, essentially a way to keep, um, to, to ensure competitive balance, essentially. The owners wanted to ensure competitive balance. So they, they implemented the salary cap in the early 90s. And of course, I was young at that time, but uh, my interest really peaked uh, during the lockout of 2011. Being a lawyer, I was a lawyer for a couple of years at that time and I had always been a football fan. And so I really started to do a deep dive into the collective bargaining agreement and specifically the salary cap and the player contract provisions within there. Because the reason I like to do it, I mentioned college football, I like viewing it as, as a puzzle, right? Fitting pieces, individual contracts, if you will, within that puzzle in order to ideally make the best mosaic possible to, to field the most competitive team in order to ideally uh, bring Super Bowl titles to that team. Um, so I've always viewed it as I've always been intrigued by it because of the challenge it presents, right? It's a limiting factor. You have the salary cap, you have to fit all players and a couple other financial metrics in, within that cap payments to players. And so I've, I've always found that to be quite challenging. And I've always applauded the various cap managers and, and, um, and front office personnel from all clubs, but specifically the Bengals for doing really a, a great job of, of managing the cap. We can question, you know, some values of certain player contracts, but I guess it's really to answer your question, my, my legal background really piqued my interest in, in, in the contracts itself. But then when you marry that legal interest with my love of football, it's how do you make all of this work? How do you make sense of this? How do you make sense of fitting all of these player contracts under the salary cap uh, while ideally fielding the best team possible within those um, contracts? Right. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's what a lot of people find pleasure in, don't they? As you say, kind of this puzzle that, that front offices are presented with each year. Now the cap uh, as a, as I understand it, is a pot of money issued by the league each year to each club. And that's their pot of money they have to spend on free agents, on re-signing their guys, uh, perhaps some, as you say, some bonuses and, as you say, other financial sundries, shall we say. And <laughs> um, I wanted to ask, though, that how is the, how is the cap? determined each year specifically yeah so it's determined via the provisions of the collective bargaining agreement 
But just on a general level, what the NFL does, what, what has been collectively bargained between the union and the league is they take essentially what's called all revenue, all the revenue the league generates. The main driver of that, the main bucket of that is the television money, the money that comes in. In fact, yesterday there was announced, I believe Disney is paying on, I think annually, $2.6 billion to, to the rights to, to the Monday night package. And I think they're now back in the Super Bowl rotation. So as you can imagine, the media rights are a big driver of the league-wide revenue. There are, of course, a lot of other buckets of, of money that the, the, the league derives <coughs> revenue from. Um, you, have, you have licensing and, and player jersey sales, for example. Uh, you have issues like stadium credits as well that we necessarily beyond the scope of, of this podcast. But you also have local revenues that teams generate. Of course, those local, local revenues were very, very down to the point of being non-existent for some clubs this year because there was no in-stadium attendance. Mm. And so the league generates a, whole, a lot of money, as you can imagine, for, on a league-wide level. So just on a base, in a basic sense, the league gathers that money. These are all, this is all contractually negotiated in the CBA, but the way they account it every season is they see how much money was earned by the league, and then a certain percentage of that is, is given to the players. Uh, from that large pot. And then that percentage, whatever that number ends up being, is divided equally among the 32 member clubs. And then you get to the salary cap. You get to that cap number, which is called the unadjusted cap, and which at this point, we don't know what it is for this coming season. But prior to the pandemic, the unadjusted cap was rising every year from about the mid part of last decade, on average, about $10 million a year. So you know, the pandemic was really caught the league and a lot of these clubs, it broadsided them, <clears throat> of course, from a cap perspective, because when these clubs plan their, their signings and their rosters, they look out, they, they, they project in many years in the future or as best they can. And they had anticipated based on at least the seven, six or seven years prior to 2020, that the cap would continue to rise at probably that 10, $10 million uh, per season increase. Of course, now it's going down. Um, so it, it's, it, you know, a lot of teams are going to be in some financial distress in terms of trimming their rosters to get under the cap. But overall, the, the cap is determined by how much revenue the league is generating. Um, and then they divide it equally by each club. You get that unadjusted cap. And one of the new provisions in the CBA allows for any unused salary cap room from the year prior the team can roll over into their cap. Right. Okay. Okay. So let's, so I mentioned that the, the cap has not been set yet for this coming 2021 season. We know that the floor is set at 180, meaning it can't go below that. And there's some, uh, there's some articles out there um, opining about what that number will ultimately be. But the important point to know is whatever that number ends up being, you'll add the amount that the Bengals rolled over last year, which was just under 11 million. And that'll be the Bengals cap space that they have to utilize. And so roughly speaking, I would say that's probably going to come in. We assume, let's just assume the cap comes in at the floor of $180 million mm. and you add about the 11 million. And so just under 11, it's 10.792 that the Bengals rolled over. You're looking at a for an adjusted cap for the Bengals of $191 million. And that just means that all of their player contracts and other player costs have to fit within that adjusted cap amount. Mm -hmm. And so we can talk about, you know, free agent contracts or even extensions, as you mentioned, you have the rookie class as well that has to fit um, in there. You also have to account for practice squad players, essentially any dollar that's paid to a player has to hit the salary cap. 
when you get to like bonuses and how you prorate that, the question becomes when it hits the cap. But ultimately, from a, from a high level perspective, the basic point to understand is any dollar that's paid to a player will ultimately have to be accounted for on the salary cap. So the cap is a hard cap. It, you, you cannot exceed it. Um, but there are various accounting mechanisms that you can utilize in order to maybe even pay a player a little bit more. But the way it's accounted for allows those cap hits to be had in future years. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's an accounting tool more than anything else to make to, in the eyes of the league, to ensure competitive balance. Mm. Um, we, we hear, Andre, we hear um, the phrase counting against the cap quite regularly. And, for, and this is, I, I hand on heart, I, this is the bit I'm not quite sure about. Uh, so I tend to just let people like you talk about it and just kind of goes, yes, yeah, Andre says this, and that must mean that. Um, but I, wa- I wanted to talk about real quick about how each player's salary counts against the cap, because it's not quite as simple as saying, right, this, this geezer here earns $5 million a year, for instance, and just subtracting five million away off the cap, right? There, there, there's more to it than that. It's how that player's contract counts against the cap, right? So, Correct. could you explain what that means? And without kind of sp- scrambling my brain, um, <laughs> how that is achieved? Sure. I'll, I'll, I think the best way to do that is to give you a simple example using some pretty simple numbers. Okay. And to your point, I'll use the example to highlight what I think a, a common misconception is about just listening to the terms of a contract and then people doing the mental math and thinking, okay, this is what counts against the cap. So yeah. let's just use a simple example. Let's say a player, whoever it is, um, signs a two-year $20 million contract. That's yeah. on average about $10 million a year. People will think, that that player then counts for $10 million each season he's under contract. Two years, $20 million, that's 10 a year. Now, could a contract be structured that way? Certainly, where it counts 10 million equally in year one and year two. But the likelihood is, is it, of that being the case is, is not very high. The reason being, anytime you have a sizable contract, you're likely gonna give a player a signing bonus. So the way a signing bonus works It's cash that's given to a player, but the salary cap, as I mentioned earlier, is really just an accounting tool. And the the way the salary cap works is any signing bonus that is paid to a player, although the cash is given for accounting purposes, that bonus gets prorated. It gets divided equally over the years of that contract for a maximum of five years. So let's take our example. A player signs a two-year, $20 million contract. And let's say that contract includes a $8 million signing bonus, right? I will say that sometimes people do confuse that and they think two years, 20 million. And maybe I've had people ask me, does that 8 million, is that 8 million bonus in addition to the $20 million total? So they think maybe it's 28 million, but it's not. The signing bonus amount is included in the total amount that's been reported. So again, two years, $20 million contract. Let's say the contract has an $8 million signing bonus. If you remember the proation principle, right? You divide that bonus by the two years. So that's 4 million that's getting account, that gets accounted for in year one. And then the 4 million of that signing bonus gets accounted for in year two. But let's say, so the player though has pocketed $8 million in that first year, but the team, the club only accounts for half of that because you divide that signing bonus 
by the term of the contract. Now, of course, the contract does not just include a signing bonus. It always has to include a base salary. So in that example, two years, 20 million with an $8 million signing bonus, let's say the club gives a player a $2 million salary. So if you do the math in terms of how much the player has earned that year, they've earned an $8 million bonus and a $2 million in a $2 million base, they've earned $10 million. They've earned the average of that contract. But the way that contract counts against the cap, to your question, it's not $10 million. The math of that is you, you just add up the base salary and you add up the prorated portion of that player's signing bonus. So you go back to the signing bonus, 8 million divided by two is four. So that four-year proration in year one, you add it to his $2 million base. And so his cap hit, what counts against the cap for that player in this specific example is a $6 million cap hit. Even though the player has been paid $10 million, it's only, what counts against the cap is his base salary and then the prorated portion of that signing bonus. So in this example, $2 million in base, $4 million of the bonus proration, you get a $6 million cap hit which is lower than the average value of that contract, the average annual value of that contract. So that's a simple example. I hope you, your listeners can be able to follow, will be able to follow that. I'm sure they will. And I certainly can tweet out some, some uh, visuals of, of sample contracts. But yeah, that'd be way- cool because I think you've just demonstrated there that the cap hit is more to do about what a player earns in one season than the whole of the contract but in turn, um, there's a there's a kind of a, a pro rata kind of thing going yeah. on there, and of course NFL contracts. Again, when we hear that, say Bobby Hart has signed X amount of years for X amount of money, people are going losing their mind because he doesn't deserve that amount of money. But when you look at the contract and you look at say Joe Mixon's contract, mm-hmm. um, they're actually structured in a way that a don't hit the cap so hard, Correct. although. Bobby Hart arguably does hit the cap quite hard, harder than he should do. Um, but also uh, there are easy outs as well. So basically an NFL contract is never quite as simple as it looks or should be. Um, can you just tell us a bit how, about how teams like to structure? Obviously each team is different and each team has its own way of approaching contracts you know, they might front load them or they might have, you know, whatever trigger various bonuses at, at mm-hmm. parts in their in their tenure at a club. So it doesn't count against the cap. How do the Bengals like to do it typically? And uh, uh, just talk a bit about the contracts, because there's a lot of yeah. nuance there as well. There certainly is. And so various teams, as you correctly mentioned, have different approaches, right? Some take a more conservative approach to, to cap management. And um, but generally, the approach as to how they structure contracts varies from club to club. Um, I, I will say that there are a lot of parallels between some of the smaller market clubs, specifically the teams like the Bengals and even the Steelers, the hated Steelers, and even the Green Bay Packers. And the similarities those clubs have is that they offer the only part of salary. Uh, the only guaranteed portion of their contracts are the signing bonuses that I mentioned. That's the only amount that the player is guaranteed to make over the life of the deal. Those three clubs, our beloved Bengals, the Steelers and Packers, generally don't guarantee what's called that the base salary portion or anything outside of the signing bonus. So, for example, when you hear a contract reported in the media, you often hear the total amount, for, you know, four years, 
40 million. And then you'll generally hear, I'm sure you've been, you've, you've heard this, you'll hear, an, they'll list an amount that's been guaranteed. They'll say four years, 40 million with 22 million guaranteed. That guarantee component uh, consists of the signing bonus because the signing bonus is always guaranteed. And then for a lot of clubs though, a lot of clubs, aside from the, the ones I mentioned, they do guarantee the current year base salaries and then future year base salaries. The Bengals generally don't structure contracts that way. They, they, they don't structure concept that, that way, that, not generally. They don't operate that way. Same with the other clubs. Um, the reason being, I think in the old CBA, they had a funding rule requirement, meaning that if you guaranteed future year salaries, you, salaries, if it was over a certain amount, you had to put a certain amount into escrow to, to guarantee that the player would see it. So I think maybe there were some issues with the Bengals not wanting to do that, similar to the Steelers and, and Packers. But that threshold level for the amount that has to be escrowed for guaranteed salaries has been substantially raised with the new CBA. But I'm sorry, I'm, Andre, escrow is basically a place in the middle yeah. where both parties can see that pot of money, right? Correct. It's right. it's a third party, essentially. It's, it's money that's given to a third party that is – it's essentially payment that's guaranteed – by one party to another, but it's given to a third party, the escrow uh, agent or account, really, to hold that money um, to make sure that the person promising to make that payment will, in fact, make it. But that's mm -hmm. maybe beyond the scope of, of this podcast. Sure, but sure, sure, sure. To, 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 be, to, to, to your point of how the Bengals structure them, how they do it, they are generally are, are light on guarantees, right? They don't guarantee the player any base salary. So the way they, they, they've come up with a nice plan the way I, when I analyze their contract structures, the way they operate, even though they don't guarantee it literally in the contract, the way they structure it allows them to functionally or, or effectively guarantee the money to the player, at least in the first couple of years of that deal. Meaning they're giving the player so much money up front, or at least a large portion, they're going heavy cash over cap. They're front loading the cash. And that way, that type of structure effectively ensures the player that the team will not cut him. And we can use a very recent example. Trey Wayne's a cornerback, right? Trey Wayne signed a three-year, $42 million deal. That's $14 million on average. To go back to our your first question, people would see that average and assume his first year count against the cap, his first year cap hit was $14 million. But the way they structured the contract structure that the Bengals came up with was they gave Trey a $15 million bonus. And since it was a three-year deal, that 15 gets divided by three. So 5 million of that gets accounted for in year one. And then they gave him a $5 million base salary. So Trey Waynes earned $20 million last year, but he was only accounted for against the cap for 10 million. So, and his 15 million was the only true guarantee portion of that contract. So the People say, well, the Bengals only guarantee a small percentage of the contract. But the reality is the Bengals aren't going to cut Trey Waynes this year. And Trey Waynes didn't play one down of football. Through no, I mean, he was injured. But people say, well, that he doesn't have a base salary guarantee for this coming season, 2021. And he does not. His base salary is not guaranteed. But he's going to be on the roster because the Bengals have already paid him so much money that, yes, they, they could still get out of it. But it's they don't want to bite the bullet at this point. They're, they're not, they're not going to cut the guy. So the way they've, they've structured it with, with a decent signing bonus, and they've actually then given him a year two roster bonus. They've paid him all this money. They're not going to cut him two years into it, even though he didn't even play last year. So the way they structure it 
it allows them to keep their policy of non-guaranteeing base salaries, but allows them to give the player enough cash up front, which gives the player security knowing that this team is giving me a lot of money. They're not, it, it's not financially feasible to, to cut them at this point. Oh, it's interesting, isn't it? As I say, there's, there's, there's far more to it than meets the eye, isn't there? And I guess that's what, what people like you absolutely love it for because of the, the little nuances, the little kind of, you know, the way things are structured, that everyone does it differently. I want to talk real quick before we have to go, Andre, about the franchise tag. Um, we're going to put this out on Monday, the 1st of March. Who knows whether the Bengals will use the franchise tag. There's talk about Carl Lawson or William Jackson the third. Um, a few people have asked, what is the franchise tag? Uh, how does it differ between uh, the transitional tag and, and who sets the, the tag value each year? So, the, so those values, whether they are for the transition or the franchise tag, are determined by this collective bargaining agreement. There's right. a specific um, articles and provisions in the uh, CBA that, uh, that give you the specific formula how those tag, the value of those tags are determined. So we don't know those values yet for 2021. But I will talk about, let's talk about the, the franchise tag. The franchise tag actually has two components to it. There's the exclusive franchise tag and the non-exclusive franchise tag. And just to give you a a very bare bones uh, summary of it, the the exclusive franchise tag does not allow the player to even negotiate with another club. It is the value of that is effectively the average of the top five salaries at that position for the current year. It's really up to a date of when the RF, when the restricted free agent tag expires, but we won't get into that. But it's it's really it ensures that the player is really going to be paid. It's a one year contract. A franchise tag is always for one year, um, and the exclusive is the highest amount because the exclusive tag is the hot is the average of the five, five highest salaries that at that player's position for the current year. And so that's going to be the highest amount, but it, it, it locks the player in more definitively than the non-exclusive tag because the non-exclusive tag, that value is calculated. It's called a cap percentage average in the, in the collective bargaining agreement. I won't get into how that's calculated per se, but it's really an average of the five highest salaries at that position, but over the course of the last five years as a percentage of the salary cap. So it's, it's a co- rather complicated formula. There's also a caveat saying that it's either that or 120% of the pra- player's prior year salary, whichever is greater. So that just means if a player is tagged twice, that um, that trigger will, will, will come into play where it's going to be a 120% increase of the player's salary. But the non-exclusive tag, if you, if you tender the player a non-exclusive uh, franchise tag, it's the, it allows the player to then go out on the market and see what their value is and and to field other offers and to potentially sign with another team. It does give the the club who tendered the the tag the right to match that offer for five days. But if they refuse, if they decline to match it, there's compensation that's given back to the club that loses the player. It's two first round picks that that get sent by the team that's signing a player uh, to the team that lost that player on the non-exclusive tag. The reality though, as you know, Paul, we love the draft. And because of the way rookie contracts are, the the low amount of salary that you're paying to rookies, um, those are very valuable to NFL clubs now, specifically because the cap is going down. Draft Mm. draft picks are going down, they're incredibly valuable, even before the pandemic. Um, So it's 
it's very unlikely that even though a player is tagged with a non-exclusive tag, even though they're able to go out on the market and field offers, another team is not going to sacrifice two first round picks for that player, unless it's a quarterback. But in that case, the quarterback, as was the case last year, is going to get the exclusive franchise tag, which gives the player the higher salary, but prohibits that player from going out and even fielding offers. Dak Prescott from the Cowboys got the exclusive, the exclusive tag. So to the to put in perspective for the Bengals, if they are going to use the tag, you mentioned the two likely candidates, one you know, either Carl Lawson or William Jackson III. Um, the value hasn't been determined, but it's by position. So positionally, defensive ends have are paid more, slightly more than cornerbacks. So that whatever the amount ends up being, the trend, the franchise tag for the def- defensive ends is going to be higher. I think it's projected to be about 17.7 million. It's going to be higher than the franchise tag for cornerbacks, which is going to be about 15.2 million. We'll know the numbers here pretty soon, but we don't know them yet. But if the Bengals go that route, they will likely issue the non-exclusive franchise tag to either of those players. If I had to guess, it'd probably be Carl Lawson. That just means then, they are securing his services for that amount for one year. And if they don't agree to an extension by July 15th, Carl has to play or whoever the player is has to play that season on the tag amount on the one-year contract if they don't agree to an extension. But if, again, if they, if they issue the exclusive franchise tag that prohibits the player from even going out and fielding offers, if it's the non-exclusive, they can field offers. But the reality is no team is going to be willing to part with two draft picks and also commit a lot of money to signing the player. Mm. Um, So the reality is even if you issue the non-exclusive tag, that player is not going anywhere. That player is virtually guaranteed to be playing football with whatever team tags him. The transition tag I'll mention briefly is, 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 is a smaller amount. It's an average. It's it's a cap percentage average, like the non-exclusive tag, like like the non-exclusive franchise tag. And it's an average of the 10 largest salaries at the player's position as, as a measure of, of percentage of the cap over the pre- previous five seasons. So it's a lower amount because it's the top 10 salaries, not the top five. And the player who is transition tag can go out on the market and get uh, in field offers. And the, the team that issues the tag has a right to match that offer. But there is no draft pick compensation. There's no compensation whatsoever if the team refuses to match. So that's why you don't see it often because, you know, if you, if, you might as well just pay the player a couple more million that's required for the non-exclusive tag. Because if you transition tag somebody and they get an offer in the open market and you don't want to match it, then you lose that player with no compensation coming back to the club. Um, You can follow Andre at Andre Perotta 13 and Perotta is spelled P-E-R-R-O-T-T-A. Andre, thank you so much for breaking that all down. Um, uh, it's going to be a busy couple of weeks or a couple of months, rather. I mean, certainly over the next month or so, you'd hope that the Bengals, they've got, I think they've got like 26 free agents to work out whether mm-hmm. they're going to re-sign or let go. And then, of course, who they're going to actually, this is the thing that most fans are excited about, who they're going to bring in, the new players, yeah. you know. Um, so no doubt you're going to be busy. Uh, do give Andre a follow on Twitter. He is genuinely fantastic. And uh, I can't thank you enough, Andre, for coming on and, and breaking it all down for us. I hope that's a help for, for everyone out there. I sincerely appreciate you having me on, Paul. It's been a pleasure. You do tremendous work. Day Nation is much more than a nation. It's a, it's a global uh, following, and you lead the charge globally. So uh, as Bengal fans from the other side of the pond, uh, keep up the great work. You do fantastic work for all Bengals fans everywhere, specifically there in the UK. Um, 
and uh, keep doing what you're doing because uh, we love Bengals fans wherever they are. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Andre. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate it. There we go. That was Andre Perotta. Many thanks to him. Uh, I hope that was a help. I hope that was an education. It certainly was for me. Uh, Nathan, what did you think of Andre there? Well, if I need a corporate lawyer, I know where I'm turning. <laughs> it's not the first time you needed to lo- a lawyer to get out of a scrape or two, isn't it? <laughs> well, I did see you get Andre's fee structure. Um, he sounds like a guy that knows how to charge for something. But um, no, I think I think I've always, you know, I've been a long time follower of Andre, and he's fantastic when it comes to free agency and understanding what's realistic and what's not. And I think that was a very useful half an hour of my time listening to just you know, how that sort of stuff works, the differences between different bits and pieces. So, yeah, really fascinating insight. I think it gives me a lot of context that you can then apply to um, the upcoming free agency about sort of what's like feasible and what's not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, fantastic interview. And thank you, Andre, for coming on. Absolutely. Uh, seconded. Um, hope that was a help to everyone, really. As I say, it was a help to me, that was for sure. Um, and as I say, we should be entering the free agency period pretty soon. We might get some roster cuts coming up. We might get some franchise tag news within the week, next week or so. Uh, so stand by your beds, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it, as I say, it is the calm before the storm, but you look at just what happened today. JJ Watt joining the, the Cardinals on a two-year, $31 million deal. But, of course, we need to figure out uh, his signing bonus to um to see what effect he has on the cap because i know that now don't i nathan so you know um yes you're uh, one step away from the bengals front office saying <laughs> oh my god don't i mean i actually i've got newfound respect for those guys in the front office having to piece together the puzzle piece together you know oh should we go after joe tooney but, but that's like He's going to cost about $13, $14 million. Should we go for that kind of priced guy? Should we go for someone a little bit cheaper in that position? Should we franchise tag Carl Lawson at $15 million or so? And then it's a lot to kind of, you know, juggle around. And as you say, I think we've got 26 free agents going into this uh, off-season. So do you bring back Mike Daniel? Do you bring back Brandon Allen? Do you bring back Brandon Wilson? Do you do you let someone like Christian Covington go? Probably. Do you let or do you re-sign Mackenzie Alexander, who was fine, not amazing, but fine? Um, what's the slot corner class out there like? You know what I mean? It's like a pretty massive uh, juggling act, and I don't envy them in that respect, really. Um, do you know what's funny, just quickly, and almost slightly yeah. off topic, is it's the 1st of March today, and obviously the season wrapped up less than a month ago, but doesn't it feel like a million years ago when the Bengals <laughs> last actually played a game? I mean, yeah. uh, you're, you're, you're saying all those players' names, and I felt quite you know disconnected from the NFL since the Super Bowl. I haven't really thought about it too much, so I had some things going on, and I, all of a sudden you're like, God, it feels like ages. You still think we've got about another four or five months to go, haven't we? It's a, such an unbelievably crazy off-season in the NFL. You, you do forget it. Yeah, it kind of goes in stages, doesn't it? I mean, Super Bowl, then free agency, then the draft, then a couple of months off, then training camp or OTAs and then training camp and then we're into it. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's that I tell you, the killer months are sort of May, June, because that's when literally yeah. nothing is happening. 
at least we can talk about free agency and speculate. At least we can talk yeah. about the draft and do our mock drafts. And I must say that Andrew Dockerell, our own Andrew Dockerell, has his second mock draft coming out this week. So look at, look out for that. Um, at least we've got that going on at the moment. And then we'll obviously, you know, because we're expecting some pretty high-profile departures from uh, Cincinnati this off-season. Uh, and then maybe some high-profile uh, incomers as well. So who knows? I mean, it's it's kind of an exciting point in the year, really, I think. Uh, but yes, thank you to Andre for coming on, spelling it out, telling us what's what. Um, uh, we do have some correspondence, so thank you very much. We are at Today underscore UK on Twitter, Bengals UK on Facebook and on YouTube as well. So do come and say hello during this off-season. Matt H at Matt P Harding. Do you think after getting their fingers burnt with John Ross in the first round, they would be hesitant about taking another wide receiver so early, such as Waddle or Smith? Chase a safer bet due to Burrow connection, but other two would be a gamble we couldn't afford to lose. Tricky one. I don't think they. I mean, I don't think they would have uh, a problem selecting. Uh, a wide receiver that high uh, you look at where they took AJ Green in 2011 that was like number four or five wasn't it so I don't think yeah. I don't think the Bengals have any um, fear uh, about choosing a wide receiver that high and you've got three around that area in the draft where the Bengals are picking that could quite easily end up in Cincinnati so to answer your question, yeah. Matt, I don't think no, there's no, there's any fear because for every John Ross, there's an AJ Green. You know what I mean? So yeah, absolutely. And I think I think the the guys that you'd get where the Bengals are picking in round one are of a much higher caliber than John Ross was. John Ross went at number nine overall, but the Bengals took him fairly early. He, John Ross was not in almost all mock drafts back then a top ten pick. He was very much sort of rumored to go sort of middle of the first round. Obviously, he's electric 40 time elevated him up a lot of people's boards but you know someone like waddle i mean i was watching some highlights of him the other day i mean he's absolutely extra i mean i'd be fascinated mm. to see his 40 times the geese is absolutely rapid but i think you've got to you can't let old you know other players um physical traits that have not worked for you in the past or have worked for you in the past um influence what you do in the present you know there's a lot of different factors there mentally scheme wise you know all sorts of different things that factor into it i think if penny saw's there at five he's the pick i don't think there's any doubt about that in my mind if he's not there i would be quite comfortable um with a few of the receivers to be honest i think chase would be incredible i think there's a lot of people know saying he might be gone by five but I, I think it would be very, very exciting as a Bengals fan to have someone like Jamar Chase um, on the team with Burrow for the next 10 years. I think you'd have a Andy Orton, AJ Green, Carson Palmer, Chad Ochocinco, and that's doing you know a pretty bad disservice to T Higgins, who you'd also have, and Tyler Boyd. Mm -hmm. So I think it'd be a very exciting time to be a Bengals fan, and I'm, I'd be quite, you know, if Saul isn't there, any of those receivers I think would be very exciting. So I hope that doesn't turn them off. Peter Dadswell at Dadders, with the possibility that Jordan Evans, Jordan Evans, may be cut. Uh, well, he's not going to be cut. He's a free agent, I think, but I, I know what you mean. Removing one of Paul's accents from the pod, which players should Bengals draft to replace his accent for Paul? A French, a French accent for Oregon's cornerback, Dio Madore Lenoir, maybe. Uh, 
<laughs> I mean, this this is it, isn't it? This is the excitement coming into the uh, new season. Uh, new players means new accents, means, means new made-up characters. I can't wait. I mean, Jordan will likely be gone. Happy St. Uh, David's Day, by the way, to all our Welsh followers and Bengal fans in the UK. Uh, but Jordan's likely to be gone, isn't he? Let's face it. But... Uh, yeah, Diamadore Lenoir sounds like quite a sophisticated <laughs> French gentleman, so maybe that's his character going forward. Uh, Don't you dare tip your hat on what the accent will be, son. You've got to keep it, you've got to, keep it to yourself to the last moment. Exactly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Andrew Dockerall at Dockers77. Is there any position other than quarterback you don't want the Bengals to address in free agency? Good question, that. I mean, I think you could probably stay away from running back, I would imagine. Yeah, that's a good point. You, and this is going to be controversial, but um, you could probably stay away from tight ends. And I say it's controversial because obviously CJ is coming back from serious injury, so we don't know how he's going to be. Uh, obviously, you know, although we're fans of Drew Sample, not everyone else is. People want someone a bit more dynamic in that room. Um, but, you know, the fact is we've got Uzama, Sample, uh, Seathan Carter. I would imagine they'll try and re-sign because he's quite valuable on special teams and they might draft someone. Um, so maybe tight ends. Uh, Defence, I mean... Josh Bynes is a free agent in in the linebacking core. Wonder whether they'll bring him back. So really, just linebackers and and uh, and tight ends for me, I think, because we do need a bit of wide receivers. Sorry, uh, what did I say? Tight ends and uh, tight ends and running backs, I think, for me. Yeah, I think running backs probably the one for me. I don't think you'd need to go out there and sign anyone in free agency as a running back. I just don't see the value would be there. Tight end, exactly like you said with CJ, you, you never know. Um, he's got quite a hefty contract. I've seen a couple of whispers around that, you know, could he possibly be a cap casualty? Um, I mean, I hope he can come back. I'd be really interested to see a full year with him and um, Drew Sample healthy, what they can offer. I think between the two of them, if they could piece together some improvement um, and string a full season together, I think there'd be a pretty strong duo but um yeah i think i think you hit the nail on the head but they're my son as you always do thank you nathan um right uh jamie at trek art beaster it's been a while since hearing your lovely voices what are you doing to fill your sunday evenings these days now football has been mugged off i expect nathan has seri r on the go but paul embroidery amdram chainsaw sculptures uh, none of those, actually, Jamie. I um, um, what have I been doing on Sunday nights? I mean, nothing really. Watching a bit of telly, really. Just watching a few crime dramas, and um, that's about it. I mean, it is a, a meagre existence at the moment, and uh, no, no more meagre than Sunday nights. There's a big football-shaped hole in my Sunday nights, and. Uh, yeah, I don't watch too much uh, football over here, I have to say, anymore. I don't have access to any of the Sky stuff or whatever. Um, 
so yeah, I don't do an awful lot. Is the short answer to that really? I, I was I was hoping to hear about your your fling with a porn star and some underground drug fuel party, son. I don't know where you left that Mate, part out. I now live in a small village in Warwickshire. There are no porn stars or underground uh, sauce pots. I around. I would guarantee you in that village there's one underground drug fueled sex party and a porn star. If you looked hard enough. Actually, I would imagine you're right. I think it could be Trevor and Shirley next door, to be honest with you. Um, but, uh, yeah, it is, I mean, it is, like you said, it is really weird, isn't it? And um, But that's the off-season. I, I, I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm looking forward to the cricket during the, um, um, the, the summer. I always get into the cricket, and there's been some... Uh, uh, a really fantastic uh, series in India, England versus India, which I know uh, ESPN's Ben Baby has been chatting to us online about. He's into his cricket, and he's uh, he's from Indian descent. So uh, there's been lots of fun back and forth about that. So yeah, it's the summer, and hopefully the weather's going to get better, and we can go outside a bit more, and you know restrictions will lift, and everything's going to be okay. And then suddenly it'll be barbecue season, Nathan. There we go. Just funny. I, I do think that the NFL, the reason, one of the main reasons that it's grown in popularity in the UK, or not, not a main reason, but, a, you know, a possible factor for it, is Sunday nights, yeah. nothing going on in the UK. Even if it's not COVID, no one's doing a lot of that. You just got the Sunday scaries with work. You're starting to think, well, you the know. The Sunday scaries. It, yeah, well, you know, where you sort well, like of that like, sort of anxiety oh, before pre. Yeah, that's, you know, you get that sort of like low level <laughs> sort of you know as it gets towards like eight nine o'clock, you're like, oh yeah. god, and you start to sort of think about what your list looks like on a Monday, and you're like, oh, oh you know, you have a bit of a but think about it. When the Bengals are playing, it dominates your Sunday, but in a positive way, and certainly up until nine o'clock anyway. Yeah, they, <laughs> you know, if they lose, they sort of ruin it all. But like. You know, it does give you, it's like a really nice, it's what makes your Sunday worth something. Because Fridays are always banging, Saturdays are banging, you know, you've got stuff going on, it's all good. And then Sundays, you know, the day can be all right. You've got a roast dinner, knocking about, and like maybe go for a walk. But the evenings are just so dull. And I just think that they're such a lovely addition to a Sunday, the Bengals plan. You know, you've got, you've got nice food to have. You have a, it's an excuse to have a few drinks. You can put a bet on, you know, you can, you've got your fantasy football games going on. Like it's just, such a delightful, delightful experience on a Sunday night. Delightful, indeed. It's a splendid experience, Nathan. <laughs> um, uh, well, yeah, I know I agree. It's three hours as well, man. Three it's hours. It's too short. It's too short. Do you mean season. it's I'm too short? Oh, no, I thought you were going to say three hours a game is too short. Well, how long <laughs> do you want it to last for then? <laughs> they need they need 20 games a season. Well, funny enough, we're going to get a 17th season, but a 17th season, what am I talking about? 17th game this season, aren't we? Yeah. I just, you know, I think they need to do the NFL season, which I think well, everyone would enjoy. Just another bye week. It helped the players out because it get you know they they give them another week to sort of get fit and have a bit of a break and not put their bodies through as much wear and tear, and then it just sort of you know shortens that off season again. Then it's mm. such a long off season, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, line of duty starting in a couple of weeks, so that's my Sunday evenings uh, booked up for for six seven weeks. Um, so I'm quite happy about that. Anyway, uh, final question, Duncan at Dastardly Duncan, solid handle. Okay, would love to get your thoughts on this. Lots of folks have mocked us to pick... Well, lots of folks have mocked us, basically, uh, but mocked us to pick Saul. If we do take him at five, is that an, an is that an acknowledgement 
that Jonah was a reach or a bad pick. Can they spin a number 11 overall selection being replaced after 10 starts as a good or even solid draft pick? Um, yes, I think they can. Um, the trouble with Jonah is durability, which is something that wasn't really on his uh, resume, was it, coming out of college? He was a pretty durable guy. And I think I think you can't blame them for taking Jonah at 11 because that's what we all wanted. We desperately needed another offensive lineman and he was the consensus best offensive lineman in that draft, you know. But it might just be that Sill is better and we still need offensive line help. So I don't see it as a slight on Jonah or the pick. I just think it's some. it just kind of says to me that they want to get better on the offensive line and... If Penai Saul is at number five and he's reckoned to be a generational talent and if he's the best player on the board and he fills a need, then you're going to do it because you want to improve your team all the time. Um, I do think, you know, there is there is a slight worry about Jonah and his durability. He's been injured a lot, hasn't he? And he seems like a great guy. I wonder if his future is at guard rather than tackle. I don't know. I'm just thinking aloud here. Could he be moved to right tackle? Uh, because then suddenly you've got two first-round tackles on either side of the line. So that's not a bad thing. That's actually a positive, I think. Um, but yeah, there's there's a few questions to answer about Jonah, but I don't think picking uh, Penai Saul um, is a slight on Jonah at all. I just think it says the team acknowledges that you know he's the best player available, he fits a need... And we're going to just get the best five guys we can out there, you know, in whatever position. Yeah, I, th I think it's always difficult when any player has like their first year completely derailed due to injury. And I think Jonah had some injuries as well this year, not as many, I think. But it, it was reported towards the end of the season that the, he could have easily played again. The Bengals just chose to sort of hold him out, obviously, because they didn't want to see any chance of him getting re-injured. I think he's a key cog next year. I think that they... It, it's a year for him to step up. It's a year for him to try and play 12 plus games and really have an impact on that line. I don't think it's like you said, any slight on him um, in terms of his talent or in terms of his ability. Um, you know, it, by all accounts, he's going to go into next season fully healthy. If him and Sewell are on that line, right, left tackle, you know, they can sort out who plays where I'm sure Sewell will go left tackle, but that's a hell of a line with them two on it. It goes from being a big weakness to a big strength potentially with those two fully fit and healthy. And, you know, then you've got someone like a Bobby Hart um, as a more than capable backup to step in if needed, which is probably really for Bobby. You know, I know I don't, he didn't I don't think, Well, year. yeah, I guess if they if, if they draft Saul, then um, you could just about retain, you know, financially because he's got a six-point... He's got a 6.8 million cap hit, Bobby Hart. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe he'll be. They, if they if they draft someone and then you've got two tackles on rookie contracts, then that suddenly makes Bobby Hart slightly more affordable. But um, I'm excited to see what's going to happen with that line. I must say, I can't wait to see um, whether it be a Joe Tooney, whether it be you know Daryl Williams from Buffalo or Taylor Moton from Carolina, and then. Um, I do think they might get rid of Bobby Hart, though. I think Bobby's time might be up with with us, I think, just because of the money. And plus he's shit, so, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, 
I'm not by any means a Bobby Hart sympathiser, but I do think he played a lot better times last year. And I think if you actually look at his the contract compared to what you pay other tackles, starting tackles around the league, it's not actually too bad. But but if he's going to be a backup, you, are you comfortable paying him that money as a backup? Probably not. Probably. I mean, the thing is, across the roster, you're not going to be able to pay everyone exactly what they're worth. You're going to have to overspend on some players, and I do think, for the Bengals' sake, that it'd be worth them having a decent option at either tackle position up their sleeve should someone go down. Big because- Fred. Yeah, but the geezers, he's been, he's worse than Bobby Hart. Like you know, he's a right a, tackle. He is definitely right tackle, definitely. Yeah, I I just think that if we were to have someone like Bobby Hart, a proven starter, whether or not he's top tier or whatever, he's played a lot of games in the NFL. He's experienced. He's been around for a while. Like if he's coming in as a backup, I'm not too fussed by it. But if you've got people like Fred Johnson that are coming in, who are sort of you know the leftover from the Steelers and seventh rounder undrafted coming in like that, that that worries me. You know, I think with Bobby Hart coming in, at least you know what you get. I know people will say, oh, he's shit. And, you know, that he certainly has been in the past. But his PFF grade wasn't bad last year. He played better last year. And that line chopped and changed every week. It wasn't an easy thing to be a part of. Yeah. Jim Turner was the coach there for a couple of years. Again, not probably ideal. So, you know, I'm not a Bobby Hart fan, but I'd be comfortable with him if, you know, there's the, the cat room makes sense and stuff. I'd be more than cat, uh, happy with him being the guy to come in if one of those guys, you know, God forbid Jonah or Saul goes down. I think that would be, you know, that'd be quite a nice position to be in, having a tackle like him coming in as a backup. So, yeah. I can't believe we're going to end this po- uh, podcast with you defending Bobby Hart like that. That's, that's... <laughs> I've defended him as a backup. Yeah, I know. I think that's. I think you make all fair points, actually. I, I do. Um, I just think for the money and... In fact, do I? I don't know what's going to happen. As I say, I'm excited to see what they're going to do with the line, really. Um, uh, okay, well, that's it for this week. Uh, thank you very much for listening. I hope uh, you all stay safe. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Andre Perotta. Many thanks to Andre for uh, taking the time to, to walk us through the financial uh, thicket. Uh, I don't know what a financial thicket is, but anyway, the... Uh, <laughs> The the undergrowth, like the undergrowth and the thickets of financial caps and all kinds of things. So thank you to Andre. Uh, we'll be back next week, as I said, with our International Women's Day special. Uh, always a, one of my favourite podcasts of the year. So do tune in for that. Um, you can reach us at Hooday underscore UK on Twitter, Bengals UK on Facebook and on YouTube. Don't forget to send your interpretations in of the four cone drill. Uh, but until next week, it is a who day from me. And a who day from me. Cheers, guys. And it should also be noted that the views and opinions expressed within this podcast do not reflect those of the Cincinnati Bengals organisation.